0: Hey friends and welcome to episode 3. Thanks for sticking around or thanks for tuning in for the first time. I feel super privileged to be sitting across from the guy I'm sitting across from today to have a little bit of a chat, a little bit of a ramble as we do, as you're all probably becoming familiar. Uh, you'll know this guy best from things like Blue Heelers, Underbelly, which is a personal favourite of mine. and You'll probably recognise him from any other show that's been on TV from the last 20 years. I am talking of course about none other than Damien Walsh Howling Uh, but one thing you may not know about Damo is that he has recently moved from in front of the camera to behind the camera and he has done so with much aplomb Um, and aplomb is definitely a word that I use regularly (laughs) anyway I just wanted to take a minute to to really to reflect on the last couple of episodes and, and just to see how the show is evolving because you know originally when I started it I just thought it would be, you know, a, a pretty casual chat with, um, with some friends of mine, colleagues, uh, people, or maybe people I don't know that well, but, you know, it's really turning into this, uh, this amazing kind of learning experience for me, and, and I just really wanted to say thank you for tuning in, um, and if you've left a review on iTunes, or, or Podbean, or wherever else one might leave reviews, thank you very much, and if you haven't, and you feel so inclined, well, your check will be in the mail, as they say. Also, if you want to find me on social media, you can find me at A-A-E-M-A-R-K-S on both the Twitters and the Instagram. And you can find this podcast uh, on facebook.com slash cunpodcast. That is C-U-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Had to think about that for a second there. Anyway, without further rambling, because this has been a gigantic ramble, I present to you, coming up next, Damien Walsh Howling. right
1: someone loves unique new york but does sally new york. it's always sally sally, sally loves you new- sally she sells seashells she sells seashells by the seashore. do you but, remember but this one she? neither of you boys are old enough to remember this one though i don't think go on Choosey, cheese, choosers always say cheese please when they choose the cheese on the cheese and yeah, i remember They're that at mcdonald's yeah. do you remember that yeah. how old are you Thirty you repeat that? I've never heard that Choosy before. cheese choosers always say cheese please when they choose the cheese on their cheeseburgers wasn't it, at McDonald's. Wasn't it wasn't che- the, the cheesy 70s.
0: cheese at triple cheeseburgers? Oh, that's cheese, a different one. Lovers choose when they choose the cheese, 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 triple cheese or something like that. No, that was the next one I think. Uh, so right.
1: in the 70s it was choosy cheese choosers always say cheese please when they choose the cheese on their cheeseburgers at McDonald's. And I used to go to the Alston McDonald's right. down on uh, Glen Huntly Road Yeah, because I lived around here most of my life. And um, yeah, and get free cheeseburgers.
0: Uh, so, thank you for being on this podcast. This is the third episode of Coming Up Next, which is still the politically correct Coming Up Next. Uh, we haven't added Tuesday or tomorrow or today yet Although, to the name. Michaela was apparently trying very hard. Michaela am, was, well, it wouldn't be difficult to convince me.
1: <laughs> I am, I'm actually feeling slightly nervous now looking at Nick over there on the, um, on the mixing desk. What are you wearing, Nick? I mean, he can't speak cuz he's off. But
0: Yeah. It's actually it's actually
1: about what he's not wearing. What the fuck is Look, going on?
0: I didn't want to I didn't want to preemptively <laughs> really tell you that this was how it happens but pants are optional. For the in, whole uh, thing? Yeah, well the fir- the first episode he just kind of rocked up Hang and on he a was second. like I'm not going to wear any pants. Ah, oh, great. Thanks a lot, Nick. I told you this was going to happen. Hang now, got a belt. So I'm going to be the odd one out here and wear pants, and just so that anyone who's listening right, to this, Oh, good, knows that's better. There is nothing wrong with being modest. This chair's a bit cold, though. Can I get a cushion? Because that's my balls that's are sitting get, on. We've only got metal chairs. I'm sorry. That's, uh, all right. It's a, a little like torture, but that's okay. I can I can deal with it. It keeps me alive during the interview, as yeah. well as my milky tea. Thank you for that. Well, I prefer to think of this as more of a conversation than an interview. Mm-hmm. Um, to I guess to the show's kind of evolved from, you know, it started out as being something where I wanted to talk to people who were either who had had a sustained career or Mm -hmm. on the precipice of, you know, starting to work a lot and working in creative fields because, you know, having just turned 30, like I was saying, I've become somewhat philosophical about why I've chosen this as a career path, something that is, you know, can be highly stressful, highly manic Um, You know, something that has tremendous amounts of insecurity in a financial sense, but tremendous amount of satisfaction and reward and something, you know, I could not see myself. I don't even think I could bring myself anymore to do another job unless there were people dependent on me, wife, kids, you know, etc. And it was something that I had to do for survival. I feel like this is something that this is something I've chosen and something I'm committing to. So I'm so curious now about what it is that makes other people do this who, like yourself, have had a sustained career for 20-plus years? 20,
1: probably, tw- yeah, actually 25 years professionally. Mm. Um, you know, it goes back before that in terms of sort of growing up around it. Well, not sort of, actually growing up around it, which we can get into. But, I mean, one thing that I was thinking as you were talking then before even say anything about that is really just you know sustained career and precipice of working a lot seem to go together for your whole career for a lot of people I mean it's it's very rare that I know anyone who is constantly working all the time and there seem to be levels of the precipice that you get to and as as they you know sort of as that that sort of proliferates if I can use a big word. Um, it seems to be all about big words. that's when it becomes manic. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's when it becomes manic, you know, it's like sort of you're either nothing's going on and you feel like there's no access to any part of the world through anything you do and you wonder why the fuck you're on the planet or it's so manic that you're having a conversation like I had with my mum last week who just sort of, put it in context is also an actress and a director so it's not just talking to someone who doesn't understand this field but you know she is also a mother who quite often says to me have you been sleeping and I just wrote something recently which she really liked and it's quite abstract it's a a film short film that I've written and uh, she really she really liked it and it's great that my mum likes it hopefully other people do too but um, I was able to say to her well can you see that actually the manic aspect of you know, not getting sleep has helped me write this. Like that's how mm. how I've been able to, you know, yeah, get into that space of being, you know, jumping off the precipice and falling for a while and dropping into, I guess, you know, letting the, the mania, the feed underworld, creativity. the mania. Yeah, the mania feeds the creativity in a funny way. And at, at, po- at certain points, I've found that it becomes quite frightening. Mm. But if you can learn to sustain that and actually understand over a
0: twenty five year career so far for me, that hopefully I always seem to come back to ground. Do you find Absolutely. that? Um, do you find that maybe the reason that the mania feeds the creativity is because it brings you into presence? So mm-hmm. when you sit down to put pen to paper, you're not actually—it's almost that unconscious part of you that is the creative side, because mm-hmm. you're not. You're not thinking about what you did yesterday. You're not thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow or who you're going to meet up with or anything. You're just there with the page and the characters. Without a doubt.
1: Without a doubt. That's a really, really, really good way to put it, actually. I'm glad you, I'm glad you fed that back to me because that makes absolute sense. And it's very true. You're totally present when you're in that space. I am totally present when I'm in that space. And, you know, it's never more clear to me, not never more clear, but the three places I guess that that's most clear to me generally are when I'm writing. The other one is editing. I can edit into the night, like the two films that I've, short films that I've made. I've done quite a lot of my own editing on, um, and I can and sit you mean down. Video editing, not yeah, video, editing. yeah, yeah, video editing. Um, so you know, editing the film once it's shot, and I can sit with whatever program used to be Final Cut, and I can sit from you know, I sit down at nine o'clock at night, and literally, I remember one night in particular, sort of earmarking this for myself, going, "Fuck, it's nine in the morning," and I'm not joking. This is literal nine in the morning and I have not gotten up from this chair I didn't get up to piss I didn't get up to get a drink I didn't get I might have had a glass of water on the desk I didn't need to eat it's like I disappeared into the world of the film Mm. plus also the technology I love using the technology it's almost like Tetris moving little pieces (laughs) around but then there's there's an adjunct to that, which is in the world of the film comes alive through moving these Tetris pieces around. and You're, you're creating these worlds and communing with these characters that you've had in your mind for so long. So in a sense, yes, extreme presence. So it would be that. And then the third place would be when I'm directing. Um, and I almost feel like it, I don't know, in a way, it's almost more so than acting. When I'm challenged as an actor, I'm brought right into presence. But i 'm directing stuff particularly something that I've written and collaborating with other people on and it's about the collaboration time just time doesn't exist in a sense mm. sort of just come into this place
0: of you're in the zone the now yeah I mean it's you know saying you're present or whatever you know it's it's kind of a little bit uh of a wank, <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, but but, but but it's you know saying you're in the zone or you yeah. you're, you're right there. You you
1: yeah, but it's really funny, you know. Like I used to tiptoe around this sort of shit because I felt that way, and I sort of felt like, oh, it's not okay or it's cool just so or new age-y. It's 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 not it's it's so hipster to say that mm. or new agey or whatever. But you know what? At the heart of it all, it's it's the only way you can really explain the space yeah. that you're in. And you know, I'm quite happy for people to call me a wanker. I don't really care because you know I know what I get out of it. And mm. I know what sharing those experiences with other filmmakers and stuff is about, and that's what I get the most juice out of in my life. Mm.
0: You know, you, you you made a comment before um, about the precipice and sustainability being mm. one in the same. Really, I suppose mm. what I meant in that is that a lot of my peers and myself included, I feel, are taking that first giant step up Mm -hmm. where you go from someone who, you know, I feel like I've spent most of my 20s working for free Mm -hmm. in the craft that I have worked my fucking ass off in. Mm -hmm. And now it feels like sort of 28 to this point now, I'm starting to get a lot more work Mm -hmm. professionally. Um, So I guess I'm talking about that precipice and I know a lot of people in my sort of groups who are at that point, I also know a lot of people who are beyond that point and a lot of people who've given up. Um, but I guess from your point of view, what is what is that sort of headiness like of that sort of duality of life? Where You know, if you'd had the wow. career that you've had in Australia, mm-hmm. if you'd had that career, say, in America, mm-hmm. you would probably be in a more, I don't want to say comfortable situation, but you'd probably be working more consistently. Yeah, I mean, if I... A-
1: If I, I'd be working, I'd be working more consistently, um, I imagine, uh, because when you translate it to the American market, there's so much more volume of work, Mm. both in film and television. Um, and you know, depending on what sort of, uh, personality I had living in America, I might own 29 yachts and, you know, I mean, here I can't even afford a rudder for one, you know, like, I mean, it, it's sort of, that's not the point, but, but, you know, the the pay scales here are completely different. So the concept of success, there was a period I went through at one stage, this is one way of sort of answering the question. There's a period I went through at one stage where everything went quiet for a period of time on the acting side of things. And uh, a very well known actor gave me a call out of the blue um, and I'd lost a couple of jobs in a row and I was sort of living on the bones of my ass and literally a few 10 thousands of dollars in debt. At a time when, you know, it wouldn't have seemed that way to anyone on the outside. Anyway, this one actor who's a very well-known actor, won't drop his name, but he gave me a call and basically, out of the blue, we'd only met a few times in my career and he he's older than me, he called me and gave me a pep talk and basically, one of the things that he outlined was that in other countries, here it can tend to be uh, viewed as a hobby, this career, anything in this career, because... The trappings of success in inverted commas, like, you know, all the solid material aspects of what success looks like, houses, cars, you know, 2.5 kids, whatever it might be that comes out of that, isn't the same as if you're in America, it's a, it's America or England, you know, and their crafts there, it's seen as a craft and that to us ourselves in the in the industry, it's seen as a craft and we feel that it is that. But it's not viewed by the general society so much as a craft unless they're seeing you on the television screen mm. or on stage, which is fair enough. There's no there's no sort of put down. That's just the way that that Australians tend to be more knockabout. It's kind of part of the tall poppy thing. Part of the tall poppy thing, which I think is really healthy to some degree. And then other parts of it are not so healthy. And what I've learned through spending time living in America and the part of the American culture that I really do love is that there isn't any of that tall poppy syndrome. Now that can go the other way and become really narcissistic and, and, you know, overbearing. But honestly, to be truthful, a lot of my time spent in America, the most creative people that I met over there are so incredibly um, supportive and collaborative in so many ways, you know. So if you can make it in a market like that. But I guess to get back to your question, it's sort of like... um, that headiness, it does come at different times and it tends it's tended to come for me when I've been involved in high-profile shows, uh, Blue Healers, Underbelly, um, and a couple of others, I guess, over time, different films that I've done. But particularly those two shows, I guess, were the, the long-term, high-volume success. Um, and I learned pretty early. I was in my early 20s, early to mid-20s when I did Healers. And I literally, I came into the show as the first new character in after the original cast. And they were just hitting their straps and starting to win a whole lot of awards before I arrived. And I arrived just when they were going to the precipice of that and then over the top. <clears throat> and um, so I literally came in when there's this incredible amount of success. But the great thing about that show was that everybody on it had families and were all a bit older and quite grounded and had done... The groundwork, so it was instantly this level of respect and sort of there wasn't really anywhere you could you could get
0: too heady. Mm. Um, I suppose um, the headiness I'm, I I am sort of angling towards mm-hmm. is the fluctuation between working mm-hmm. and being a recognised face, um, you know, in the public eye, mm-hmm. and then not working. I heard. Um, I heard a story about an audition that you did that involved you traveling internationally Mm -hmm. to then come back to Mm -hmm. working at a bar. Yeah, (laughs) It was actually
1: for King Arthur. It was for the film of King Arthur. Right. And basically what happened was, this this is quite a funny story to illustrate what you're talking about. So talk about precipice and then this heady thing. So I had literally, I was in a period of time where I wasn't working very much. I had that year for some reason did this experiment and I sold the apartment I was living in um, because my mortgage was too big and I couldn't afford it. So I sold that apartment, which was in St Kilda. Um, I got rid of my car and my phone, my mobile phone. So this was all an experiment to see if I could live a little bit more, you know, because I was using my phone so much and I just sort of felt like, oh, we'll see what happens. And I was working in a fruit shop at South Melbourne Market Hmm. at five in the morning but what I had bought was an answering machine so I could call my answering machine and I'd done an audition I'd put down a self-tape that weekend and on the Tuesday I was at work and I ran across the road at probably 10 in the morning just to check in with my answering machine and there was a message from my agent saying give me a call and um, so I called her and she said have you got a current passport and I was like yeah and she said we just got a call from London Jerry Brookheimer wants to fly you to London to audition <laughs> for the role of Lancelot in <laughs> King Arthur. And I was like, say fucking what? And she's like, yeah. And I, I was standing, I was looking at the fruit stall that I was working in, you know, I'd just been stacking apples and doing whatever with no mobile phone and nothing just sort of standing there going, okay. And she said, no, want you to leave tomorrow. And at the time I was doing a play in Melbourne and I was working in a bar for $14 an hour or $15 an hour. Um, so I couldn't go to to Europe and stay and play. It was like literally fly and fly back. So I literally jumped on the plane the next day and flew 33 hours across the world. What year was this? This was 2004. <clears throat> right. This is after you've done Blue Healers. Yeah, so this is after Healers. And, yeah, is, so after and uh, I flew halfway you know, halfway across the world, got to London, and was so excited to go into this audition and meet Brookheimer. And it was being directed by Antoine Fuqua, who directed Training Day, which is one of my favorite movies. And I arrived at the casting studio in London after I think a quick sleep or something, a couple of hours. And there were literally seven to ten guys sitting in the waiting room in that ten-minute period that I arrived and I looked around and all of them had the scripts, the sides for Lancelot. And I could hear Irish accents and I could hear American accents and I could hear English accents. And I was like, all of a sudden I looked around and just in that... One little period of time that I was there, these guys... So it was a cattle call. So it wasn't even that I was special in the sense that, you know, Brookheimer, for him, it was like flipping change in a taxi, Mm. I'll fly the kid over. Business class, by the way, (laughs) they flew me, which was pretty funny. So I went into the room. I met Antoine Foucault and I met, you know, Jerry Brookheimer. And then they said, you know, that was great, whatever, do the scene. And I did the scene. And they said, fantastic. I did it twice. And they said, that was brilliant, great. And I was like, do you want a workshop? You went, No, 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 no. That was fantastic. Great. We'll, 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 <laughs> don't call us. We'll call you. And I was like, okay, fine. And it was really weird. So I spent the rest of the half day looking around London, jumped back on the plane, flew
0: back, didn't get the role. So you were literally there for one day?
1: Yeah, literally. And then they were like, oh, we, we're looking for someone. And the, the excuse that I didn't get the role is we're looking for someone over six foot. <laughs> and I'm definitely not over six foot. I'm not a shorter. I'm 5'9". But it's like, How do you, you know, couldn't you have asked that question before you flew me to... So it's sort of strange. So that headiness was... It's a bizarre thing because then I was thrown back into this situation working in the fruit shop and this bar and doing a fringe play at La Mama, which I was having fun doing. But it is a very strange... And I've had a a number of situations like that. Go on. Over time. Well, I mean, you know, there's screen tests in America... They come and go and any actor who spends a lot of time there will tell you that you screen test and then you wait and you know, you're right on the cusp of things. And once you screen test what happens is that you actually sign your contract for the series. You sign seven years on a contract before you audition before you do your final audition. Oh, because wow. they've got to pay you for the screen test. But if you're gonna screen test and they're gonna pay you, then they want you to sign. So seven actors or five actors or three actors excuse me. Will sign. Um and then you go in and do, do the screen test. And I did one for The Walking Dead, um, for the lead in the first series, um, with Frank Darabont directing. And it was an amazing day. You know, eight hours working with Frank Darabont and four other actors. So there were five actors, and he literally asked all of us to turn up and collaborate with each other and read for both roles. So most of us had auditioned for one role, but he was like, "I want to, I want you to each learn both roles." This is for the two leads, Rick and, um, whatever the other character's name was, Shane. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I auditioned with one of the guys who ended up playing Shane in the series on the day, but again, you know, like in there having a lot of fun, you come out of that experience four days waiting and then you get a, you know, then you get, oh, sorry, it went to somebody else. Too sure, but, but you were great. <laughs> it's like, mm. ah. So that headiness is very, it's an intense thing. And there are a lot of people who choose to live that life and stay in America and mm. keep keep going. And, you know, I have a lot of respect for, for them. But for all the people that I know and I do know a lot of people who have really made it A-list and, you know, they're really smashing it over there of all different age groups. And some of them have been there for a long time. Others just walk in and it happens. But then there's a whole lot of others who are there and really still trying to make it happen. And I think you have to, <clears throat> to balance all of that, you've got to be living in a place you want to live and doing what you love doing with your life. Otherwise, I don't know, for me anyway, I, I started to atrophy, it just didn't, you know, my soul started to be eaten away by the, by the experience of waiting. So sort of almost like you've got one hand on your dick with the other hand out going, please give me a job, <laughs> you know, trying to cover up your nakedness because you feel naked and, you know, it's, it's one of those things, but you choose it. So there's no complaint in anything I say, you yeah, know, there was complaint along the way. I'm not going to bullshit, you know, but you've got to grow up and take responsibility and go, well, this is, I'm choosing this. I'm here in Los Angeles. I chose to be here. Nobody put me here. And I guess for me, I just got to a point where I realized and a few years ago, I started making films and started to enjoy that process actually more than, than waiting around for work. Mm. And it, I don't know, then I've stopped thinking about the other in a way.
0: What was the, what was the feeling like when you were sitting, waiting in, in London for Jerry Brookheim? Oh my to... God.
1: Uh, what was the feeling like? It was, I was, it was exciting and nerve wracking to a certain degree. Um, although it was sort of funny. I think, I think it's sort of, you feel a little bit buoyed by the fact that they've chosen you to fly you. So it's sort of, there's a bit of confidence there. So you go, okay, all right. Well, you know, they obviously like something that I did. Um, but as I said, when I walked in and I saw seven to 10 other actors in that five minute period, I thought, oh, well, there's, you know, they're flying however many tens or hundreds in, mm. um,
0: what an absurd concept that is. Oh, it's pretty wild. It's I think about you know, how much money that is. That's just like, like we could probably make a series for the money that they spent flying actors from around the world in,
1: or you'd. Yeah, you could make, I mean, you could definitely make, you could make a web series with the money they just spent flying me in. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like probably what's a ticket, what's a quick off-the-cuff ticket to London? Yeah. Business class. Yeah, probably like 10 grand. grand. Mm. So you could make a small web series for that. Yeah. Um, That's crazy. It is pretty nuts. So when you think about, you know, when you think about these big series or movies and and the budgets are massive, I mean, that's all part of it too is the casting and Mm. people forget all of that stuff. But it's sort of, you know, it's, it's interesting to talk about it so candidly because it's a lot of the stuff that ends up being hidden and people don't talk about it too mm. much, you know. Um, well,
0: I guess I guess the thing that I'm interested in is, I mean, that's pretty glamorous on the one hand and then, you know, grounded and, and back to reality on the mm. other hand. When you come back, you work at the mm. bar, work in the fruit shop, you go and do play at La Mama. Like that's yep. the grind yep. um, that perhaps you know, um, people of the Secret Life of Us cast of 2002 or whatever it was. Um, Some people may not have that. Some people have given up and some people are unicycling around the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what is it for you? What do you think it is that maintained that drive and that passion through it? Wow, it's such a... It's
1: almost like I want to say it's it's sort of indescribable Mm. in a sense. I mean, or... Describable, but, is that the word? Uh, yeah, go on, go on. I was just going to say, <laughs>
0: um, look, going back to how you started, you came from a background in theatre and then mm. went into television. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's something to be said for the acting bug being bitten by the mm. acting bug at a young age. Well, I mean, I guess for me, I grew up,
1: if if, if truth be told, I grew up doing it. I mean, my, my mother was one of the founding members of La Mama and the Pram Factory. I mean, she was there when all the inception of that happened and very heavily involved. And I was born you know i was born in 71 she probably took a couple of years off but was back in there pretty early so from the age of about four three or four i was running around at la mama in the Brown factory and literally have very very clear memories of that time even though i was so young i think because it was such a magical and out of the box sort of experience mm. although as a kid you know what you know but but there was a lot going on There was a lot of sort of artistic stimulation and um so as a kid, I remember these sort of magical worlds. So there's always this thing that I guess I'm trying to re-access. You know what I mean? Because it was magical as a child, and a lot of the performers that were there were pretty nuts, in a great way, in really creative, great ways. Like great clowns, and lost. You know, the guys from Los Trio's Ring Barcus were around, and oh, wow. Bruce Spence, and you know, all these really sort of beautiful, crazy, nutty, you know, artists um, who had time for kids at different times to you know sort of muck around and whatever so me and my brother were always really involved in that so i guess from a very early age i was watching all of that collaboration and that play that sense of play and passion and straight away that's what i wanted to do i've never thought about doing anything else and i guess it became apparent to me over over the years also i in a sense as my confidence grew as a person that it was more than just about acting, but it was about telling stories overall Mm, and recognizing that that's part of, part of the tradition that I've grown up with. Um, And then performing itself, just, you know, there's been so many, there's been so many moments that are sublime when you're, when you're performing. I mean, there's, a lot of moments that are not sublime that are really <laughs> fucking difficult and where you feel self-conscious or that's not working or, but when, when everything's sort of fortunately composed and it comes together, there's no greater drug on the planet. And, what? You know, I mean, it's for me anyway, it's, you know, like anything that you're doing again, it comes back to what you were saying about sort of being present.
0: Mm. One of the things I've I've been asking people, which is something that is fascinating to me, is uh, whether or not you remember that first moment where you entertain someone as a Mm. child or maybe even an adolescent, where you have that first time where you connect with someone and you're responsible for their entertainment.
1: Mm. I do. I remember it really well. And actually, sometimes I cite it as the first memory, conscious memory of wanting to do what I do. And it was at kindergarten. I probably was about... Four years old, four and a half, and I remember another kid was it was, it was in Westbury Street here in uh, there was a there was a kindergarten here in uh, in the suburb we're we're talking in um, and uh, East St Kilda, and it was called the Centre, and it was a it was a preschool that my parents started with a whole lot of other hippie parents back in the seventies, um, and I was there one day in the hallway. It was an old you know it was an old double brick house, red brick house, and. I was in the hallway and this kid was crying. He was really upset about something and, you know, distraught. And I just remember sort of clowning for him, I guess, sort of playing a character and being funny and getting right up in his face and sort of like mucking around and having him shift and having his perception shift and, and laugh with me. And I guess it was sort of taking the, the focus away from his pain and just an innocent kid playing, you know, but I knew that there was something in it that was shifting, you know, his focus. Mm. And I guess that was the first internal experience of going, oh, wow, this, Mm. this is actually something, yeah, this is something I'd love to be able to do. Mm. Um, And then seeing lots of theater and all those sorts of things. But the first film experience that I ever had that, that did that for me was Gallipoli. I was like 11 or 12 years old. And I remember seeing it and, I don't, I don't think I formed this sentence in my head intellectually but I remember getting to the end of that film and I was bawling my eyes out and I remember looking sitting in the in the forum cinema and just going or oh, the capital actually it was and I remember thinking wow this medium and again I didn't form this sentence but this medium <laughs> the medium, medium the, is part of the has, 12 has the, the, yeah yeah right? yeah but this this medium has the power to change you know to change me. To, to change people, to, to actually, and if you think about it, some people sort of say, I oh, you know, this is definitely not me. Other people have said it. it's been said quite a bit, but that, you know, cinema is sort of like the modern church. In a sense, you go there and you can be really changed. I mean, it can be profane church as well, but, you know, cinema and people would argue music and other forms of art as well. But, but for me, cinema, I'm lost in the cinema. I was never a novel reader. I don't read books. You know, I've probably read 15 novels in my life. Yeah, I'm with you. And, you know, I read a lot of other stuff, but I only do it in pieces. I don't generally read whole books. And, you know, I guess I used to think, oh, I'm a bit ignorant. Maybe, maybe not. But I, but my l- literacy in film is massive. I mean, that's that's what moves me. Take me into a cinema. And if someone's crinkling a chip packet, I'm the one who jumps up and tells them to shut up. But on the <laughs> other hand, I'm just, I'm lost in the screen. I'm, you know probably the worst date on the planet if you take me to a movie because I'm just so caught up in what's happening I saw a great film last night by the way just off the subject but it's called 71 71 with Jack um, Jack O'Connell is that his name he's in Angelina Jolie's movie um, Unbroken he's the lead in that and he's in another film called Start Up I think he's named Jack O'Connell English actor but it's a first time feature by a French director and it's um, set in 1971, the IRA, and it's about a, a British soldier or a, a sort of battalion of British soldiers going into Northern Ireland. Oh, my God. One of the most accomplished pieces of cinema I've seen in,
0: well, this year for sure, mm. in the last couple of years. i check it out. Incredible film. Yeah. It's your uh, it's your worst <clears throat> theatre experience. You said before you had some pretty harrowing ones. <laughs> On stage? Yeah. Oh. Um... <laughs>
1: I did a show I did a show a few years ago in Sydney um, and I guess I guess at the time I wasn't feeling super confident in my own uh, in myself just generally I was going through a hard time personally in my own life and um, I didn't really gel with the experience and it, it when I look back on it it was nothing to do with the director or anything it was more to do with my own self-doubt um, and generally all the sort of theater and other things that I'd done up to that point had always, you know, a lot of it had been really, um, successful, you know, inverted commas, both for me and, and, you know, as shows, the shows had done really well, um, and been received really well. And I did this one show and I just didn't understand what I was doing. I didn't commit to it. I sort of, um, I was sort of always backpedaling and didn't ever throw myself fully into the experience and couldn't, as a result, just couldn't sort of gain traction on stage. And every night felt like torture. It was just, I really, really... And when I look back on it now and I look back on the piece, it's a really great piece of theatre. Um, and I understand it from a completely different point of view and I would play it. I would play the role completely differently. It was almost like I was trying way too hard because I was not, you know... Um, and my, my headspace was in the wrong place it was it was I don't know there was something about it was my ego was in the way you know not in a positive way in a, in a sort of negative sense. So I think quite often when you're not when you're not playful and you're not just contributing, you know I feel like that's the most important thing is collaboration and contribution and sharing when you're working and a sense of playfulness mm. as soon as you lose that sense of playfulness you're fucked yeah. To be honest, it, it really, and, you know, I read something that Bill Murray said recently. He said the more relaxed he's become as a human being over the years, the better his acting gets. And the more relaxed he is about turning up to some intense scene, the better the scene goes because his instrument is completely relaxed and he's not coming at it from some <clears throat> narrow-minded point of view. Even if the point of view is intellectually, you know, uh, serving the piece, it's still a point of view. And so it's marginalising what's available to the, to the, you know the flow Yeah. so there's that there was that one Um, and yeah I guess a few little experiences over the years (laughs) although the uh, you know the ones that most keep smiling about yeah no just things where you know where things go wrong on stage I remember William H. Macy lectured us when I studied in New York I studied at Atlantic Theatre Company in New York and Macy came in to lecture us and him and Mamet put the course together through some of their students or their students did through them. But they originally ran the course. Anyway, he came into lecture us and I remember him saying um, one of the pieces of advice he gave was if you're on stage and a piece of the set falls down, fuck you, it's your fault, make it work. <laughs> um, if, if another actor spits in your face, fuck you, it's your fault, make it work. If, if you lo- if you you know lose a line, fuck you, it's your fault, make it work. In other words, take responsibility. And the other point he was making was that the, the audience saw it. The audience is seeing what's going on. And if you lie about it and you pretend it didn't happen, they know you're lying. So bring it into the piece somehow, make it work. Don't make a meal out of it, but bring it, bring it through. And I just, when I smile, I just think about a number of times on stage where stuff like that's gone wrong and little quips have come out of either my mouth or somebody else's or, and to me, sometimes they're the most alive moments in the theater and it can actually set the pace for the rest of the play if something like that happens. And hopefully that's where theatre is every night. I mean, that's that's what Mamet and Macy are trying to engender in their students, you know, when they that's what they're talking about is keeping the, the piece alive always. But, you know, that's that's all very well in principle, but in practice, you know, again, mm. it's what you were talking about before, it's presence and, you well, know... I think it's great. I was if gonna you chase say, I think, it,
0: you're fucked. I think that's great <clears throat> advice for life, you know, mm. take responsibility. Yep. Don't blame other people for your circumstances. Yep. And while you're smiling...
1: Yeah. No, no, no. I'm, I'm smiling because that's exactly when you say it's for life. That's where Mamet yeah. takes it from. He takes it from the Stoics. Mm. He was a very big fan of the Stoics and the Poetics you know, and, the, and all of that sort of uh, philosophy. And that is advice for life. And he has sort of basically transposed it and brought it over to, to acting. But the funny thing I love about Mamet too is that he's written these books based on that stuff to do with acting. And he wrote one in particular where he sort of tore... Tour, yeah, what's that one called? It's a, a True and False. Yeah, that's and right. He tra- that one is he tore the industry. Yeah, he tore the industry a new arsehole, basically. And it's, I've actually got it in my bag. I read it sometimes, but I read it to students. But what I love about him was about a year later, he admitted that he was really angry when he wrote the book <laughs> <laughs> and some of the things that he said. But Alec Baldwin says something like, I, I agree with almost nothing Mr. Mamet says in this book and encourage you to devour it you know, completely mammoth is a genius. And that's sort of what the book for me is. It's sort of just a reminder sometimes when you're taking yourself too seriously, that
0: it's, you know, and it's easy to do. So easy to do. Yeah, for sure. Especially I think in the world of creatives and artistic people who are so desperate. And I say this without any judgment, but are so desperate for validation of their lifestyle choice of their career of all of this stuff. It's so easy to start taking yourself and what you do so seriously. Mm. And as you say, when you lose that play, mm. that's when it all goes mm. out the Do you feel window. like there
1: are parts in your career where you, where
0: yeah, you for take sure. it too seriously? For sure. Um, you know, it's only really been in the last few mm. years where I've just sort of taken the foot off or, or dropped the whip. Mm. And, you know, when you're taking it seriously, it's just that you're beating yourself up for not being where you want to be. But ultimately, you're never where you want to be, you're only where you are. Absolutely, and as soon as you had drop into that, which comes back again to being in the zone, being present, mm. you know, that seems to be the lesson for today. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so take it in, you viewers, listeners, listeners. Sorry, yeah, yeah but you know, radio. Well, We've, people could we, be We watching. have given them.
1: We have given them some visual. Uh,
0: yeah. Some very nice visual imagery. Nick and my ball sitting on our chairs. Uh, yeah, well, I was really <laughs> hoping that we could forget about that because I'd sort of I was present enough with you that I w- you'd put it somewhere ignoring else. those circumstances. Yeah. Um, look so at the eyes, look at the eyes. It's it's actually weird, uh, just purely by coincidence. As I said to you before, Michaela, I did last week, and then the week before, I was with my friend um, NATO, Nathan mm. Wentworth, who was, and you know, they, so you're three people who have actually grown up. Mm. As actors or in a creative sphere I, I didn't grow up in that way I grew up um, my grandfather is a writer but aside from that everyone in my family is more I guess you corporate or doctors or academics. Academic, yeah. that, that sort of world and um, my brother and I you know have both taken on creative endeavors you know Nick's a musician And I've been a filmmaker into an actor into a filmmaker, um, which I guess is telling stories. And, you know, from my grandfather, I learned to tell stories and he would openly encourage us to do that. Mm. So I suppose this is a really long winded way of asking you how you think an environment shapes what you want to do and what you decide to do, because... Michaela said the same thing about never, it's never, never sort of thinking about doing something else with their mm. life. You know, you said that was it for you. Mm. I know for me that I came to that point a bit later in my teens, which is still a lot earlier than a lot of other people, mm. but how do you think that upbringing shapes what you want to do?
1: I mean, I can only speak from my own experience and that is that massively huge. I mean, it's, it's, it has so much significance in terms of what direction I've taken. Um, and, you know, Uh, both my parents, I thank for that. Um, I guess, particularly within the field I work in my mother, you know, because she's the one that, you know, was so uh, heavily involved in the theater, but both of them encouraged me to do, you know, to go for it if that's what I wanted to do. Um, But yeah, in my case, the two are inextricably linked. You can't, you know, the career that I've chosen and my upbringing are absolutely in harmony. It just makes absolute sense that that's what I would have done. Um, or that I, that I do. Um, that's my stomach. Sorry. All those noises. Yeah. It's just <laughs> <laughs> everything settling and moving. Um, your milk. Yeah. My milk, my zymel. Um, but yeah, but it's interesting too, because you know, you say that, that that's not, I mean, apart from your grandfather encouraging you to tell stories, which is a massive thing. Mm. Um, you know, I guess sometimes an environment that is so counter to that creative side could, you know, um, induce induce. Yeah, I mean that's the word I'm looking for. Some sort of state that is then not just a state for that moment, but is about.
0: Mm. I mean, we were always we were always. Um, openly encouraged to do whatever we wanted to do it wasn't mm-hmm. as if when I said when I was coming out of school I want to go and do drama mm. that both of my parents were immensely supportive of that mm. but there is no anything in my family mm. that you know that, that no one's ever been was an actor. a actor there was no precursor for that no one's yeah. ever been a filmmaker no one's you know dad was a musician um, until he was in his early 20s and so I suppose we were exposed to a lot of these things, but never really in, you know, um, a, a career sense. And, you know, we're, we're a mm. Jewish family. It's mm. very, you know, entrenched in academia mm. at school. You know, you, you, you're taught that the things that you should be looking to do are medicine and mm. law mm. and mm. accounting. And, you know, the, the humanities subjects are more... I'll push them to the side a little yeah, bit. Yeah, At least good. when I was there, they they're were. They're good for a bit of
1: fun, but uh, yeah, that's
0: yeah. a hobby. That's not a career. Yeah. Which is what you're saying about you know the Australian mentality before versus yeah. the American mentality. And I remember the first time I went to LA actually mm. as a um, an adult, feeling like wow, here I can tell people this openly without mm. fear of judgment. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> here, particularly when you haven't it's gone beyond the precipice that you were talking about before. Yeah. Coming back through to what we were talking about before, you grew up in the theatre mm. and then you were 19 when you got your first TV gig? Pretty much, yeah. What and was 89,
1: I was 18 I think um, and that was Boy
0: Soldiers, it was part of the More Winners
1: series on the ABC. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, and I was eighteen, but I had to lie about my age and say that I was sixteen, right? Because it was part of the Children's Television Association, and so we were encouraged, if we wanted the role, to say that we were sixteen. So I don't think I've ever told this story before, but basically, um, I did that with Tamlin Lord, um, uh, Nathan Croft, who's now he works as an actor, but he also works as a first AD. AD, is he? AD yeah. yeah. He was the first on uh, Snowtown, and he's done quite a few big films. Um, but me and Nathan and Tam and then
0: Gary Sweet. Um, so I worked with Gary. That was in 89. How did that, How did you feel like, you know, as oh, an 18-year-old pretending a, to be a 16-year-old? It was
1: amazing. It was the most incredible experience. And we shot it down. It was pretty cool because it was set in 1915 or even early, around 1915. It was about boy soldiers in the First World War. Um, and... Uh, Penny Hackworth-Jones was part of it. Bruno Lawrence from New Zealand, who's a really amazing actor who's no longer on the planet, but um, rest his soul. But he he was involved and he, you know, I was in awe of his work. Gary Sweet. Um, and it was just, it was, man, it was wild because we're doing this thing set in another time and the costumes were incredible and, you know, it was really beautifully shot and the production design was incredible. And we were shooting outside Melbourne, so we spent all our time down in the in the barracks down in Point Lonsdale, so it was shooting away from home, and on a number of levels, it was just sublime, you know. And I, I was doing my first scenes in front of the camera, and it just felt, I mean, it was it was it was sort of this excited trepidation, but there was also like a feeling that it was quite natural, you know. It just felt like something that I took to straight away, um, and I used to sit on set. You know, we'd, they, I'd finish my scene and it'd be night at night. They'd be shooting till one in the morning, night scenes on the beach or something. I remember one night in particular and just sitting on the beach. And I was told a few times, you can go home. And I was like, do you mind if I stay and watch? Like I was just fascinated by the whole process. Mm. And I'd already done my work experience on a TV commercial in the city two years beforehand and was happy just to wrap cables and make coffees for people like I was that excited that if we drove past, you know, you drive past those big lights on um, train tracks when they're doing track works, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're the same sort of lights that they use at night on film sets. And when I see those to this day, if I see that, I, I just get a subliminal feeling that, Oh my, my God, it's a film set. And mm. I just, this electricity runs through, which I guess, which I guess is a similar feeling to being on set as a kid um, on stages as a kid and traveling around with the mama shows or pram factory shows or whatever. But yeah, uh, that feeling of being in that show was amazing. And Gary Sweet used to um, come and knock on our doors because we had to go to bed because we were 16, in inverted commas. <laughs> we had to go to bed at 8 o'clock or whatever and Gary would come and knock on our doors at about 8.30 or 9 and take us to the pub. <laughs> and, a couple uh, of 16-year-olds. Much to the uh, chagrin of the makeup artist. It's a no, good word, chagrin. Beautiful, beautiful man, Nick Dorning, who um, had to make us look 16 again in the morning with bloodshot eyes <laughs> And a night of uh, partying on with Gary Sweet. Oh, it was so much fun, man. And, it, it, you know, the three friendships between me and, and Tam and Nathan, it's just like we have this shorthand now when we see each other.
0: Mm.
1: It was sort of all of our first experience.
0: So you go from doing that, you kind of go into, you know, the Blue Heelers, the world of yeah. TV. That was through. another, that was probably
1: another four years, three or four years. So I did a little bit of tiny bits and pieces on Neighbours, a couple of television
0: commercials, blink and you'll miss me. Uh, quite I f- did. I did. Your, my favourite uh, credit of yours on IMDb is uh, Crazy Man in Toilet. From yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, that was actually that was post Blue Healers. I'd done Blue Healers by that stage, but Clayton Jacobson. Um,
0: <laughs> that's funny,
1: Clayton Jacobson. I feel like Nick could
0: probably do that role right approach, now.
1: Approached me for. Yeah, he could totally. <laughs> um, Clayton Jacobson approached me for his film Kenny, and um, you know, I met him through Nash Edgerton one day, and we were just chatting at the Nova actually cinema, and uh, and he said, oh, you know, are you around at the moment? You know, love you to come and do a little cameo in my film, Kenny, and it's just you. You'll be covered in tats and you bust out of a burning toilet like, you know, a, um, a portaloo. And I'm like, that sounds awesome. Let's go, like whatever. <laughs> and he said, look, I can't pay you, but if we make money from the film, you know, it's 500 bucks, you know, that'd be... And they did pay me later because they made money through the film I got my $500 check. But um, yeah, that was actually quite a fun night And they dressed me up with all these full on heavy, you know, right wing tattoos and all this other stuff. And I burst out of a toilet. and I was basically crazy man. And on the first take, he came over and he was like, oh, settle down, settle down. Don't hurt anyone like he was. But he'd forgotten that I'd done four years of stunt work on healers. So when I jumped out of the toilet and was attacking people, I wasn't actually hurting anybody. Um, And he said, oh, it was a bit, you know, it was a bit intense and over the top. And then he always jokes when I see him, he always says, I used that fucking take. It's great. That was the one. Like, I asked you to settle and it didn't work after that. Mm. Um, But, yeah, that was fun. That was... I love collaborating with people, you know.
0: Collaboration is the best thing in the world. And when you have that moment which you... I guess you were alluding to before with the editing mm. when you have that moment where it goes from being a project to being a film mm. and it just sort of comes together and you can see all the work that everyone has done and then it just disappears and it becomes its own living, mm. breathing thing. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you actually about Underbelly, mm. which I loved. Mm. Um, and actually Benji was my favorite character mm-hmm. when I was watching it. Um, and you became quite entrenched in the character but also quite well known Mm. for this character absolutely um and one of the things i was talking to again michaela last week about was you know we talk a lot about a lot of people get into acting because they want to be famous Mm -hmm. and i make no sort of judgment on that Mm -hmm. if that's what you want to do that's what you want to do Mm. um but i know a lot of people who are in the industry, who are working, aren't really interested in that side of things. And I could imagine that playing something that iconic and that with that much um, gravitas mm. that you would be noticed a lot and recognized a lot as this person. Mm-hmm. Is that saying that you feel like you've had to sort of navigate through?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess you know, there's always an element of that. It's one of the, it's one of the aspects of the industry, and and I guess the way I look at it, this is just my own personal view, but you know, I see that the whatever the that aspect of being well known as a byproduct of the work itself, the aspect of it that I think is important is that you know, do I want to tell stories to the widest audience possible? Absolutely without a doubt. I don't Mm. shrink back from that. Of course I want to, of course, you know, you want to access as much audience as possible because you know, and, and have them access the work as well. And whatever they think of it is what they think of it. But it's always a, it's a buzz to, to access an audience. And particularly if they, they like, you know, or they're moved by, or, you know, somehow have an experience through that. And underbelly was definitely one of those jobs. Just to jump back in time a little bit, doing healers was obviously another really high profile. And through that period of time, I feel like there was definitely, and I won't go into it too much, but there was definitely a navigation of how to deal with that in the public eye. Like, you know, all of a sudden you go from complete anonymity to people coming up to ask you for autographs or to say, hey, or whatever they want to say at the time. And I totally, totally understand that. Well, there's an a- there was an aspect of it initially that was sort of like, wow, this is sort of exciting because it means that we're getting through mm. You're touching people. Yeah kind of but, and I think it's here. different for everybody. Everybody's got their own way of, of being in the world but, but I definitely went through a stage where it started to I started to feel slightly crippled socially because I didn't know how to deal with it. and I, and I, and I guess you know I was young and I didn't I didn't know how to, to sort of I felt like I had to do something else to try and remain grounded. Whereas really probably all I had to do was just be present, you know? Mm. Um, but, you know, it was sort of like, oh, how do I stay present in this situation with my friends while we're eating dinner and somebody's, or, you know, more than one person is coming over and not be rude to them and not seem like a dick to my friends. And you know what I mean? Like it was all this, which really when you, I have to laugh, cause it's all me, me, me. It's all, it's pretty, but it's also natural. It's the first place a lot of people are going to go. Some people would probably just own it and go, this is, Great, and some people probably tell people to piss off, but I don't think in that way, in any way, shape, or form, because I understand the audience's access to that. I guess over time, what I've learned is that exactly what I just said. I, I totally get it, and um, I find that the more accepting you are of it, the more people respect your space and your time. Mm. And and it's also it's a two way thing. You're saying thank you for recognizing, you know, and I'm glad that that you've had that reaction, unless they're telling you something really awful. Um, which happens at times. That happened. But, yeah, but, but it's sort of like, you know, Underbelly for me and for all of us, that was a particularly magical experience. You know, the subject matter of that show is so full on. It's so intense. And it was so close to the history of it when we're still close to the history of it now. But, I mean, we were shooting that series only three to four years for my character, three to four years after Andrew Veniaman died. So, you know, there were questions in my mind about, you know, doing the show, you know, what, what, what's the purpose for doing the show? And mm, but, then when close, I read the, yeah. but then when I read the scripts and I saw that they were, you know, that they were trying to, to they really were um, not trying to, they were, they were writing from a place of humanity. These are human beings and this is a particular story that's going on. And for me, that's always the benchmark. It's got to be accessing a certain humanity. Um, and once I took the role on, there was no looking back. I didn't, you know, I just took responsibility for that's what I was doing. And I did my research and I and I tried as much as possible through working with the other actors and with the with the crew and, you know, with the, the directors and the writing and stuff. It was just one of those magical experiences where I think we all felt such a responsibility to the story and we felt so privileged to be the people who'd been, you know, cast to play these roles, that for me anyway, I couldn't do anything else but be totally present to it. Mm. Um, And that was magical because I didn't feel like I was just sort of playing and having fun. We were there to do something that was... Creating a marker of history. Yeah, a marker of history. However, having said that, we did have a lot of fun doing it. And I think because we were we were we were creating that marker of history we all relaxed mm. relaxed to a certain degree and went well this has sort of just happened and I'm coming along for the ride and really <clears throat> and I mean this honestly your work is only ever as good as the person standing across from you or the people standing across from you and there's a great saying about acting that I think is you know I think it's it's a really important one is that is that the 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 focus of your performance or the power of your Of your performances in the other person and you know that's not always easy to to remember but in that show I feel like we all respected each other as actors and we all respected the story enough to know that it was about how we were affecting others in scenes Mm. so the commitment of the other actors it sort of all becomes this uh, what's the word I'm looking for it's like biofeedback it's a symbiotic relationship between the script between the directors and then between the actors um, and it just happened to be uh, you can't really define it mm. um, and it was hugely successful um, and people felt like they knew those characters and for me personally because you asked about Benji in that in that way people did identify with that character because of the writing because of you know whatever elements came together and I was fortunately able to step into that role and and actually access something in myself that that was um you know that for me was a really, really really personally special experience. It's one of my favorite experiences playing a role ever. Mm. But that show I think that show for me really um it was a benchmark for for work after that in a way. Mm. I learned something on that show. I think because of the responsibility, I, I just went, okay, (laughs) actually what I did was I went, this is not, this is about everybody. And it's not, you know, I suddenly got it a bit more. I sort of went, Oh, this is a whole, there's a whole massive story that's gone on to create this piece of television. Mm. Um, and we're just little players in that, in a sense, that's what the focus is on. But you know, without all of the rest of it, it just doesn't happen.
0: Mm. Going back to that, like creating those sort of iconic characters and the way that I guess people respond to fame. I mean, you know, again, doing that, doing Love Your Sister with Sam certainly showed me the power of humility and and being humble and and being irreverent and not taking yourself too seriously and all that sort of stuff. Um, I'm curious what it was like a couple of years earlier than that when you did Ned Kelly. Mm Mm-hmm because that was a massive cast. Mm. Um, Heath Ledger, Orlando mm. Bloom. Mm. Um, Who
1: else was in it? So it was Heath, uh, Joel, Edgerton, um, Naomi
0: Watts. Naomi Watts, that's what I was thinking. <clears throat> um, uh, yeah. What, I mean, what was it like to work with Heath? Were you, were you good mates with him?
1: I didn't, I didn't work directly with Heath on that um, in terms of on camera, um, but that was the job that I met Heath on. So um, Gregor Jordan was directing it um, and, you know, Joel was already a mate. We'd already done a film together. We'd played uh, gay lovers in a film called Saturn's Return Mm. back in... uh, 2000 i think or 2001 were you
0: mates before you did that no
1: we met okay. well, I, I basically saw him do henry five the famous henry five that he did for bell shakespeare and was blown away and then four weeks later i was cast opposite him in this i was cast first actually and they were looking for the other role and then they called me and said w- we think we've cast joel edgerton this guy joel edgerton and i was like awesome like he's such an amazing actor um and that was written by christos sulcus that film who wrote the slap and head on and that um, was an amazing experience. And then we, by that stage, we'd also, we were doing Secret Life of Us together. Joel was a key cast member and I did about six or seven episodes. Um, and we were all living in St Kilda and hanging out a lot at that time, um, a whole lot of us. But yeah, going on to the set of that film was pretty amazing. It was probably the biggest film set I'd been on. Well, it was the biggest film set I'd been on up to that date. That was when I met, you know, I met those boys um and I was I had just come back from overseas and Gregor asked me if I'd be his rehearsal actor so if I'd stand in during rehearsals in the rehearsal period not during filming and stand in for whoever wasn't there so it was pretty funny you know there were days when for whatever reason Jeffrey Rush couldn't be there so I was standing in reading his role opposite the other boys or if Heath wasn't available you know just so he could run rehearsals um and I got to know the boys really pretty fast um and they're incredibly inclusive. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> Heath, you know, what do you say about Heath? He, he was the most incredibly humble, generous human being. Um, and, you know, yeah, we, we developed a friendship from that point onwards. Um,
0: you lived with him for a while? Yeah,
1: I spent a bit of time in LA um, living at his house and stuff. And, you know, it was an incredible time. Um, and he really, he really invited me in to that world when I was there um, and was not at all, you know, my dad came to visit me at one point, I remember. And the particular night that my dad arrived in LA, for example, <clears throat> we were going out for dinner and I was living on the bones of my ass and, you know, he said, you should come for dinner. And I said, oh, my dad's coming in, you know, I'll leave it. And he goes, no, no, bring your dad. And I was like, oh, and he's like, dude, don't even think about it. Just, you know, and he was always very
0: inclusive
1: and invited my dad to his news eve party and you know he was just a very very real person Mm. and he'd never met my dad he didn't know if
0: he was going to fit in he just was one of those people who trusted it'll all work out um what was his uh i don't know if you ever discussed with him but what was mm. his sort of take on the craft of acting and and he didn't discuss he
1: didn't discuss those things he really didn't Mm. he's pretty you know uh one thing that i will say and you know look you saying any of this sort of stuff because it's you know it all gets sort of munched up and turned into legend and it's just it's just the way people are but you know Heath was a very easygoing human being from my perspective um and um he uh, from what i saw he wasn't really into analyzing stuff he was just into living life and i think that's why he did so well to be honest i mm-hmm. just <clears throat> he was absolutely present he really was. Um, And I think that's why he was so successful and why people were so drawn to him in all walks of life, whether they knew him or they didn't, you know? Um, And, you know, he was an incredibly generous human, as I said, you know, and uh, because of that, you know, it's a really funny thing. You know, I don't talk about him very often Um, and that's not because, you know, that's not because of anything else than he was a very private person as well and you know, I can reflect on how I felt about him, but his own his own experience, I don't know. He was just, he was fiercely private, just in the sense that, you know, this is life and this is the moment and you don't really need to speak about it outside of that sort of stuff, you know. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, my memories of him are very fond and I'll always be very thankful and grateful for the time that I spent with him and for the time that he, you know, showed generosity not only to me, but to other people around me as well. Mm. Um, and you know, one thing I'll say about the Ned Kelly, because you asked, is that I shot a small scene. Gregor came up to me <laughs> at this party we had, um, and he said, "Oh man, I wish I had a role in the film for you." Like, you know, you know, the more that I, the more that I think about yeah, yeah. it, do you want to kill me now? <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, I sort of do." And he said, "But hey, listen, I do have this little role, and I sort of, you know, would you do it? Like, it's a, it's two lines, and then you die, basically." Um, and it's a re- it was a f- really funny scene because it's basically this cop who shoots you know thinks he shot Dan Kelly and he yells out he yells it out he yells out he yells out something to the to the guy who runs out of the bar and he says stop where you are or something and then he says you know I I shot Dan Kelly and then he gets shot in the head himself. And Gregor, Gregor's sense of humor, that whole beautiful sense of humor that he has. And I've worked with Gregor a bit now, um, but you know, two hands and then old school, which I just did with him, didn't do two hands with him, but that sense of humor. And he said to me, he said, what you need to do is you need to yell it out like you won the lottery, (laughs) like yell it out (laughs) to everyone, the whole field. And then, you know, and then you get squibbed in the head. And it was a really quite a complex scene, even though it was only literally five seconds on screen or 10, 15 seconds on screen, maybe. But I was tapped into four different departments. So there was, you know, special effects with the squib in my helmet, which is the, for anyone who doesn't know, squib is the the little blood pack that explodes, you know, and this, you know, bullet hits me in the head. So the squib has to go off at the same time as I'm firing my own gun, so that's the armory. And then I've got Gregor talking to me and they've got the special effects of rain coming in as well. So those machines, those rain machines are really loud. So you have to to read dialogue everything later. So you can't even hear anything, rain's pouring down on top of me. And then I'm working with the stunties as well because I've got to to fire my gun at a certain point so that they can set off the squib on this other guy's leg because it was all being done in one shot. And then I have to yell out this line and do everything. It was all this timing. And it was really funny And and I remember being there and they were just about to run the rain machines and I'd been briefed by these four departments and Gregor as to how to do it, the whole scene. And I must say, I was pretty nervous, but I just thought, oh, well, this guy in this situation will probably be pretty nervous. And I remember I remember doing the scene, and we did it in one take. Luckily, we sort of were able to do it in one take. It just happened. It just somehow it happened. And Gregor, Gregor came running down from the monitor through the mud. He was so happy that we got it done in one take because it was quite a complex moment. And he came and picked me up out of the mud and gave me a hug. He was like, oh, you know, awesome, great, whatever. And I remember looking up just on this little rise on this hill and Orlando and Heath and the other boys were all standing there. They'd all, they'd all come from their trailers to watch, you know, to watch. <laughs> and it was just really, it was such a nice moment. It was really, you know, and that's the sort of guys they are. I find that my experience living in Los Angeles and spending time there with many different people, that quite often the greatest artists are the ones that are, that are the most successful. And if you want to say, you know, the whatever terms you want to use, but then the ones who are in that megastardom, are the most grounded really in the end the more the more profile and the, the more uh prolific they are as actors to me and my experience the more grounded they are and the more willing to give you know and there seems to be a real a real silent mentorship that goes on between you know Heath looked up for a lot of people and then you know other people who are there now are always sending down the line come and stay at my place they'll they'll buy a house or hire a place with three extra bedrooms so other people can come and stay. And, you know, cause there's a lot of Australians going over, not just Australians, but you know, it tends to be that you've got to share, you've got to, mm. you know, heard a great saying, Jack Lemon the other day, I think I'd heard it before, but someone said it, you got to remember to send the elevator back down to the ground floor, mm. you know? And um, yeah, I think that's a really, that's one of my favorite parts of the, of the industry.
0: Mm. Yeah. we talked a lot about presence and collaboration I mean is that what life is for you? and the opposite as yeah. much as it's one thing it's the opposite
1: like you know what goes up must come down and I, I really do believe that that's how, how it works you know to whatever degree that you're present and collaborating you're, I'm probably just as fucking selfish and, and, um, and not present and uh, and <laughs> And lost at times, you know, it's really. True. But I mean, but I mean, I guess those things are always, you know, they're always going to be there hand in hand. Yeah. I, yeah, I just, it's one of those things that I think one feeds the other one really without, without sort of seeing the other side of it. You don't, you don't really, why, even, yeah. why would you move to expand and grow if you weren't sort of, you know, if you were just Comfortable in one place doesn't mean it's happy or fun, or. But I think I don't know. I think as I get older, I sort of recognise that there are patterns, and I just surrender a little bit more to it when I'm in that, other, you know, more contracted spot. Mm. But it does come and go. And you know, you know, for example, for me, this year has been a real joy, more because of an inner state change for me. Because last year I was really chasing externally, and I was in LA, and I was trying to find work, and I was. You know, I was putting all my eggs in one basket. And then, uh, I don't know, I just had a change of heart and went, I'm not happy. It was as simple as that. I'm fucking deeply unhappy doing this. It's not full expression of who I am, just for myself. I don't care about, you know, not expression in terms of out there, but I'm just not happy in my daily life. Why, Why am I doing this? This is silly. It comes down to something that simple. And I literally turned the boat around and came back and it took a few months to sort of, I was here and I was going, Oh geez, I'm back in my hometown and do I want to be here? And then I started teaching and then I started loving teaching. And then from that, that gave me the energy to start writing stuff. And then, you know, before I knew it, I was working again and then other work was coming in and then I'm creating my own stuff. And now I'm in a much more creative phase Mm. in that sense. And so much happier, and so much more fulfilled, took and spending time with my family and my friends, and you know,
0: you mm. took responsibility.
1: Yeah, in a sense, but I think there's, I think there's, pro, there's, there's again, I think there's a process that you go through, and you, maybe you'll go through it a few times in your career. Oh, for sure. Because what tends to happen is you get into that heady space, and you rest on your laurels. You know, and hopefully, as you go along, you do it less and less. Like this year, it's been really creative for me. It's been fantastic, but I've kept the teaching going, mm. and I'm forever indebted to that. And I want to keep the teaching going. I really enjoy it. I really enjoy working with students and seeing the brilliance that they bring. They do things that I could never imagine doing as an actor. Mm. Like and I'm teaching, you know, I'm teaching. What is teaching? I'm facilitating space for them to play and experiment and bring ideas in and ideas that I've had shared with me from great teachers and other actors that I've worked with and bringing that in. But the students teach me just as much. And I mean that, you know, it sounds like such a cliche, but they really fucking do. It's like I get so much out of their commitment. And then they do things that on the screen or, you know, in the class that are so courageous. And sometimes, quite often, brilliant i go wow you know and, and that'll be a breakthrough for some student who hasn't been able to break through and it's because they because of their own process and somehow you know the teachers that they're working with something just clicks and if that happens to be in your particular class it's a really wonderful thing to see mm. um and yeah so for me those simple things have become much more a part of my life <laughs> Take until I was forty-four to work it out, you know, and I'm still, you know, still on that sort of playground. But I, uh, yeah,
0: I think a lot of people probably don't ever figure them out. So, mm. you know, it's it's a great place yeah. to be. And unfortunately, I think uh, it's going to be a great place to stop chatting. Yeah. Even though I feel like we could probably keep chatting <laughs> more and more. I've got like a shitload of things that I wrote down that we haven't even. Well, we can we can chat again to, at
1: another point when you you know
0: yeah that'd be great man. i'd love to to have you in again um what makes you silly
1: wow what makes me silly yeah um what makes me feel silly or what what makes me whatever what makes me silly whiskey yeah absolutely and what do you do when you're silly Uh, on whiskey fuck man (laughs) what don't i do when i'm silly on whiskey um i dance on tables i fall off tables I cut my hand open. I put a tea towel around it and go out dancing more. (laughs) Uh, There is a story about that that actually was one of the silliest nights I've ever had. And I actually fell off a bar. I was dancing on a bar and the barman was trying to get me off the bar. And I fell. And on the way down, it all seemed to happen in slow motion. I was falling through the air. And I I knocked a Gelliano bottle over as I went down. And you know how tall and thick that glass is. And it hit the ground before I did. And there was a shard sticking up like the Eiffel Tower. And my hand went straight. I've still got the scar. I can show it to you it's on that finger there. Oh, wow. And it sliced my finger wide open right at the webbing. <clears throat> Sorry for any graphic detail. And uh, down, almost down to the tendon and the bone. And I literally just wrapped a tea towel around it and kept going. And I partied all night. And I got back from being out at a nightclub at 5 in the morning. And the tea tail was just caked in blood. Mind you, this was all on the night of my 19th birthday. So this is 25 years ago. I
0: was going to say, because it wouldn't be able to stop you from doing the Macarena. No, but no. The Macarena hadn't been invented <laughs> hadn't yet. Hadn't been invented. But um, yeah,
1: but I still get that silly sometimes. Um, and other people make me silly too. Absolutely. That's other, the worst joke people. you've heard recently. I can't tell it. I actually literally can't tell it. I'll tell you after we get off air, but I can't tell it. Oh, all right.
0: It's the worst joke I've ever heard. And you just don't want to be associated it's with it. It's
1: the worst joke ever.
0: Cool. All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, being on. Coming up next. Pleasure. And uh, I guess we'll see you next time. I'll yeah. hear you next time. Absolutely, and man. You can put it's your been pants great. Back on.
1: And thank you, Nick, very much for the recording prowess. Please put your pants back on.
0: I will. Oh, hang on, yeah. Just do that. Belt back done up. Do you want to go for a whiskey? Yeah, I'd love to. to. Great. Let's get silly. Some... Well, that's the end of episode 3. Thanks for sticking around, friends, and thank you for continuing to come on this journey with me and a special big big fat thank you to our guest Damo for uh, for sitting in the chair and for just, you know, having a ramble with me. Don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, that you can subscribe to this uh, podcast on iTunes, Podbean, hopefully Stitch soon for all of you Android users, and, you know, maybe uh, maybe you want to mm, give us a little review, maybe if you like what you've heard and are you thinking about uh, finishing off your novel? But stick around, next week we will have a very special guest. You will hear a kind of inside story I guess on our time spent together on Love Your Sister. Hear him talk about playing Molly Meldrum before we get Molly Meldrum on the show in a few weeks time. Samuel Johnson is coming up next.